You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we're following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke and experience true discipleship. And before we welcome Pastor Kevin to the stage, please join me in today's scripture reading from Matthew 21, 12 through 22. Please stand if you're able. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribe saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Kevin, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're visiting with us, I want to thank you for joining us today. And I wanted to start by asking you a question. When was the last time you got really angry? Just thinking about it. Month ago, week ago, day ago, hour ago, maybe. What what stirred your anger? What what was the source of it? What was your anger directed at? I think that's a good question. What'd you do with it? Anger is an interesting emotion. In humans, it shows up in different ways. For some people, anger causes us to blow up and yell. Others, it causes you to go quiet and retreat. Anger is really, really powerful. Uh, It can destroy relationships. It can be incredibly destructive, distort our thinking. But at the same time, the Bible teaches us that anger is not always a sin, that it's, it's not always sinful to get angry. A few weeks ago after church, I was sitting at lunch with my kids and I asked them, hey, what did you guys learn at Sojourn Kids this week? And my son said, we learned it's, it's not a sin to be bad. And I thought, what? It's not a sin to be bad. And I was like, I think I need to go talk to Maggie, our kids director, about some of what's being taught. I said, can you explain what you mean? It's not a sin to be bad. And He said, no, 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 it's not a sin to be mad. Jesus got mad when he went into the temple and started turning over tables, but it wasn't a sin. And I was like, that's that's great teaching for us to be teaching our kids because that's a really big, important concept. It's the passage we're looking at today that anger, while it can be powerful, it's not always a sin. And oftentimes, anger, it's really, it's what some people would call a secondary emotion. Uh, It's not a primary emotion like, 
fear or uh, anxiety or, or sadness or even something like love, it, it, it's a result of those things. And something that I learned a few years ago that, that just rang so true with me, Tim Keller, he's a pastor in New York City, he, he says this, he says, anger is actually the result of love. It's energy for defense of something you love when it is threatened. And when we get angry, especially when we get really angry, oftentimes that's because there's something we love that we feel like is being attacked, being threatened. And I say all that because in this, you know, wonderful yet kind of strange passage that Lindsay just read for us, the common theme through it is we see Jesus gets angry. And we can look at that, and I think a big question to ask is, why does Jesus get angry? What is it that he's angry with? But even more, what does that teach us about the love of Jesus? What is he trying to protect? What is he trying to defend? What gets him so mad? And so what I'd like to do with you this morning, because this passage is, well, part of it's familiar, other parts of it are strange, I want to walk through the whole thing kind of from beginning to end, and then I want to draw out a few conclusions for us as God's people and what this word means for us today. So before we dive in, would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, who makes himself known, and you speak to us as we are, where we are. We thank you that your word speaks to the reality of life, to the complexities of it, to the the sin we all live with and experience, either it's our sin, the sins of others, the suffering we go through. Lord, I pray for us this morning as we open your word that you would, you'd give us eyes to see, you'd give us ears to hear, and that as we explore what it is that that drove your son to this action and to, to the anger, what stirred the anger inside of him, we might see something true about you, what you love, Lord that our hearts might be more conformed to yours. We ask all of this in your son's name. Amen. So the first, there's kind of two stories. The first story, it's a famous story about Jesus storming the temple, overturning tables, and driving out people who are exchanging money and selling pigeons. And if you're new to the Bible, a little background's helpful so you understand kind of the setup, what's going on, the context here. We learned last week that the time that that this takes place is Passover. Passover was a week-long celebration for the Jewish people. It was one of the great big holidays, and people would travel from all over to come and celebrate at the temple on Passover. Now, when you would come, part of the Passover uh, celebration was you would bring an animal and you would sacrifice that animal for your sins, and people who were traveling for you know, dozens of miles or hundreds of miles, it was really hard for them to bring a lamb or any kind of animal along with them to sacrifice at the temple because that animal that she sacrificed had to be pure and it had to be unblemished. And so what was created by the time this event had taken place is kind of a whole little like farmer's market, you could say, was set up where Pilgrims who were traveling from far away, when they got into Jerusalem, they could buy an animal right there, and then they could go take that animal to sacrifice. Now, there was also money changing that was going on because people used different currencies and all of this. That's all the context of what's happening. And the question is, why is Jesus 
he sees all this business taking place, and he, can't, he starts to seethe with righteous anger, and it's why. What's wrong with what's happening here? I mean, there's nothing inherently evil in these practices of exchanging money or even selling animals for sacrifice. They would act, it could actually be a great service for people who are traveling a long way. The way I traditionally understood this passage and the way probably many of us did is that Jesus was mad that they turned worship into this money-making racket, that, that they were price-gouging people and getting rich off of poor people who, who came to worship. And while there might be some truth in that, the best scholarship we have to this day says that there was not really, that wasn't the heart of the issue. That Jesus wasn't mad that people were buying and selling animals for sacrifice. Uh, I mean, even the text here, or that they're ripping people off the text here. It doesn't say that Jesus drove out the sellers, like those people who are trying to get rich off of worship. It says Jesus drove out the sellers and the buyers in verse 13. So it's not just, there's some kind of financial scam going on, because Jesus is driving out both the people who are buying and the people who are selling. What is it that makes Jesus so mad? Well, he actually tells us, he, he, he helps us understand in verse 13, after he drove them out, he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Now, in that short little verse, Jesus is saying a massive amount because he's actually quoting from two very famous Old Testament passages, both of which, when we individually and when we hold them together, help us understand the real issue and what it is that stirs Jesus' anger about what's happening in the temple. The first comes from Isaiah 56, and it's important to remember when Jesus or others in the New Testament quote the Old Testament, oftentimes they're not just quoting the one verse, they're quoting the whole section, the whole passage. They're, they're speaking, kind of calling people who are so familiar with the word back. Remember this passage and what it said here? And in Isaiah 56, God, he speaks a word of hope directed at non-Jewish people, at Gentiles. God says, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Now, without getting too lost in the weeds here, God is speaking a word to people who were traditionally not inside his covenant community, people who are considered unclean or defiled or any sort of things. And God is saying, listen, if you come to me in sincerity of heart, I won't cast you out. I'll welcome you in. It's the big point. And then he goes on to say, these, these Gentiles, the people considered unclean, these I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. He's talking about the temple here. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's a big picture. God is saying, I'm not just a God for the Jews. 
I'm a God for all peoples everywhere. And my desire is that my temple, it would be like a city on a hill that would draw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that people from all over and every background and ethnicity, they would come to my temple and they would worship. And I will not cast them aside and I will not cast them out if they do. God is revealing his heart in this passage. Now, fast forward about 700 years to the events described in the text we're looking at today. And the temple had been kind of built and had been remodeled a few times. And the temple, it was built with this great intentionality. The best way to think about the temple is a series of concentric circles. The very center of the temple was what's called the Holy of Holies. That's where God's spirit dwelt in a unique way. The second circle... That was where the priests would go. The next circle would be where Jewish men could worship. The circle outside of that was where Jewish women could, could worship. And then the circle outside of that, the very farthest out ring, that was where the Gentiles, the outsiders, the defiled or unclean people could go and worship. And at this point, that part of the temple was actually a courtyard. It was kind of like the parking lot. It wasn't, you weren't really in, but you were, you were pretty close. Now, all that's really important to understand because what's happening, all of this buying and selling, this trading, this exchanging money, where is it happening? It's happening in the Gentile courtyard. It's happening where anyone who's not a Jew who wants to come and worship God at the temple They basically have to worship in the midst of a flea market. You know, all of this noise, all of these things going on. They couldn't focus. They couldn't direct their attention to God. Kind of made a mockery. I mean, think if we as a church, you know, said anyone who's tall, over six feet tall, you have to worship back in the overflow room because we don't want you blocking people. And anyone who has little kids with you, we love little kids and we celebrate them, but you should go back there as well. So, So we pushed you to the fringe and, you know, say we had our coffee and we said, we're going to put our coffee back there and we have a very small book table. We're going to put our book table back there and our our welcome table and our missions. We're going to put all of the stuff that happens on Sunday, normally out in the atrium, we're going to put it back there. Imagine how hard it would be to worship as people were constantly talking, walking in and out, pouring coffee. That's Multiply that times about a thousand and that's what's happening here. And Jesus sees this. He sees that the Gentiles have, for all intents and purposes, been excluded from worship in the temple, and he's angry. He's not angry by what's happening. He's angry about where it's happening. That's the first part. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, and it's not. But then Jesus says, not only have you excluded them, then he makes this other reference to an Old Testament passage. He says, but you make it a den of robbers. So you've excluded the Gentiles and the people, the Jews who are allowed to worship in the temple, they're not worshiping with a sincerity of heart. We know this because that phrase, den of robbers, it comes from a very famous passage from the prophet Isaiah, or sorry, Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 7, in which God offers a searing indictment of superficial religion. And I want to read, it's a longer passage, but I want to read it to you. God speaks to his people and he says, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates, all of you who are strolling into the temple to worship the Lord. 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. But do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Now, what the Lord's saying through the prophet Jeremiah is people were coming into the temple, and it didn't really matter what they did outside the temple. Once they got in the temple, they felt like, we're good. You know, we're in the temple. We belong. This is where God dwells, so we're good. The temple of the Lord, we're fine. It doesn't matter what our life looks like. But God says, he says, if you truly amend your ways and deeds, if you truly execute justice one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. But behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. God is saying to the Israelites, you're out doing whatever you want, murdering, committing adultery, lying, stealing, ripping people off, and then you stroll into the temple and you think everything's fine. Because maybe you make a sacrifice or an offering or you go through the motions. You are making a mockery of me and of the temple. It's become a den of robbers. Now, it's important to understand what Jesus is saying here. Think about that phrase, den of robbers. Do robbers commit their crimes in their den? No. They go rob outside of their den And after they've committed their crimes and done their evil, then they go back and hide out in their den so they don't get caught, so they can feel safe. And God's saying, you've turned my temple into a den for robbers and for the wicked. See, Jesus, he's calling out the rampant hypocrisy that marked God's people in temple worship in that day, that these people, they had this superstitious reverence for the temple, but they lived in wickedness and they dishonored not just the temple, but God. They went through the religious motions, but their hearts were far from God. And not only that, these same people who are in the temple who are doing all of these wicked things, we know that a lot of them, and, and that the spirit of the age at that time was there was this strong national impulse among the Jewish people. And they actually looked down their nose at Gentiles. They, they kind of, I mean, some of the most popular writings of that time, Jewish writings, believe that when the Messiah came, he would purge Jerusalem and the temple of all Gentiles and foreigners. And so it's not just that they accidentally overlooked, like, gosh, we're making it hard for Gentiles to worship. They were intentionally seeking to marginalize them in the temple while their hearts were far from God. So you put these two things together and you start to see why Jesus was so mad. Because the temple, which was created by God, was supposed to be a place where people from every tribe, tongue, and nation could worship God, 
could offer sacrifices and find forgiveness for sin, could have their hearts transformed. transformed. That's what it was supposed to be, and instead it became this kind of nationalistic symbol, this place filled with sin and arrogance. A lot of people were excluded, and even the people who were coming in, their hearts were far from God. And so when Jesus drives out the buyers and the sellers and the money changers, it's not just them that he has a problem with, it's the whole thing. And he's looking at what's happened to the temple and he's saying, no more. You all need to get out of here. And then in verse 14, we're told that for a brief moment in time, Jesus restores the temple to its original design. Matthew tells us that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. So he drove out the wicked and the corrupt, and then the blind and the lame, people who typically were never even allowed in the temple, Jesus says, no, you can come in now. And he starts to heal them. There's this brief moment in time where the temple regains its purpose. Outsiders and the unclean could draw near to God and find healing and wholeness. Continuing on in verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, save us, son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Now I find this fascinating. Jesus restores the temple to God's design, to to what God had declared in his word. This is what I want my place to be. Jesus does it, and I love how Matthew says that the, the chief priests and the religious leaders, they see the wonderful things. But then they hear little kids who certainly heard it from their parents. You know, the parents, who is this? Is that the son of David, the Messiah, the king? Kids start crying out, it's the son of David, it's the son of David. And the chief priests, you know, cross their hands, cross their arms. Do you hear what they're saying about you? They're claiming you're the Messiah. I mean, they're totally blind to what's happened to the temple. They're totally blind to their own corruption. Instead, they're upset. They're they're calling you the son of David. We're the chief priest. We haven't called you that. Are you going to stand idly by while they do this? And Jesus said to them, verse 16, yes, I am. (laughs) And I always love it when Jesus asks, the scribes, people who devoted their life to studying the word. Have you never read? Have you not opened the Bible and read? In the Psalms where it says, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now what what Jesus is saying here is, if these six-year-olds see me for who I am, how much more should you? But you don't. You're blind. You are so lost in your lifeless, superficial veneer of religion that when God strolls in and fulfills his promises in your midst, you can't even see it. You just can't see it. It's a powerful passage. But what's interesting is we know that Jesus, he didn't destroy the temple on that day. And actually, we can be sure things quickly went back to normal. Um, The temple was something like 35 acres. The complex, it was huge. There would be thousands upon thousands of people. They had their own police force. And so what happens here, it's not like Jesus drove all, you know, 
20,000 people out of the temple. It was probably just a small little dust up in one corner of the temple. And I say that because what Jesus is doing here, he's not trying to start a revolution or a political insurgency. What Jesus is doing here is he is kind of taking the role of a Jeremiah or Isaiah, and he's offering a prophetic indictment. The passage we looked at last week, the triumphal entry, Jesus, he he kind of revealed that he is the one true king of Israel. Well, in today's text, Jesus reveals that he is the the last true final prophet of Israel. And that's important to understand for us to make sense of what happens next. We're told, told in verse 18, verse 17, that they left, they went back to Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and that's where they stayed. Verse 18, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. I still remember the first time I read this passage. I was a new Christian. I was about 15. And I was really disturbed by it. Like, what's going on? Jesus cursing an inanimate object, you know? Never again. Is it like those old Snickers commercials? Like, you're not yourself when you're hungry. That Jesus, he's just had a long week. He's tired. He's hungry. He thinks he's going to have a meal, and then there's nothing there, and he just kind of flies off the handle at the tree. It's a strange passage to us. And it seems so out of character for Jesus. But if you study the prophets, you'll see that a fig tree is often used as a symbol to used to represent uh, used as a symbol for Israel multiple times and multiple times Israel's unfaithfulness is often compared to a fruitless fig tree and so in the tradition of the prophets Jesus he curses this tree as a symbol of the judgment coming on Jerusalem now, this is different for us, and it seems kind of strange, but really both of these acts are, we could call them sign acts of the prophets. When you study the prophets, you'll see that oftentimes in the Old Testament, they spend a lot of time talking, but every once in a while, they stopped talking and they started acting. God didn't just call them to proclaim, but sometimes God would call them to do pretty weird stuff, and he would explain to them, this is why you're doing it, but they wouldn't necessarily explain to everyone else. And so in Jeremiah 27, God tells Jeremiah to walk around with the yoke on, like that you'd put on an oxen, to put it on himself and just walk around. Offers no explanation to anyone while he's doing it. And people would look and just say, that's really weird and strange. Or Isaiah 20, this one might be the worst one. Uh, Isaiah, prophet, a very, very prominent figure in that day. God told Isaiah, hey, this is your next assignment. For the next three years, I want you to walk around naked. No explanation. I just, you know, the, the religious guy, you got to take all your clothes off, and for three years, I want you to walk around naked. So strange. I feel so bad for Isaiah on that one. Ezekiel. There was a bunch in Ezekiel, but one of them was God, God told Ezekiel, called him to lie on his side. 
for 390 days. And this is so disgusting, but it's what the word said. Have you ever heard of Ezekiel bread? You can buy it at certain stores. So it's made of a bunch of different things, but God called Ezekiel to make bread and cook it over human excrement. Now we read those, and the first time you read them, you're like, this is so, the Bible is so weird. What is this doing in there? But then you go in and you see, oh wait, there's actually, if you read the passages, there's a real depth of meaning. There's something God is trying to communicate. And so with Isaiah, God was sending out a warning that those who disobeyed him, that the Assyrians were coming and they were going to take them as slaves, and the slaves that they took were all going to be naked, let out of the city naked. And so just as it might seem strange that Isaiah is naked, and he's basically saying, if we continue on the path we're on, we're all going to be naked and in chains. Ezekiel, the passage of laying on his side, cooking bread over excrement, that was, if you continue on in your disobedience, you're going to be so starved for food, you're not going to have any energy to move. You're going to be laying on the ground, just totally wiped out, and you won't even have, there will be such devastation, there won't even be fuel for you to cook food over. You will have to use excrement because that's all you'll have. At first, they seem strange and weird, But if you press in, you see, wait, there's something greater going on. God's giving a very real warning. And so when Jesus curses this fig tree, which symbolized Israel and the temple, he was making a very loud declaration about what was coming. It's interesting how Matthew tells us that the tree had leaves, just didn't have fruit. I think that's why Jesus reacted so strongly. It had leaves, it made a, a show of life that promised fruit, but it just wasn't bearing any fruit. And in the same way, there was so much religious activity in Jerusalem, so much going on, so many animals being bought and sold, so many people coming into the temple, but the fruit of mercy, of love, of compassion, of caring for the outsider, of welcoming in the stranger, There was none of that fruit. So Jesus curses the tree. And I think the disciples knew what he was doing. I think they knew what it meant. Because they don't ask, Jesus, how could you curse a tree? Instead, we read in verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did that fig tree wither at once? They weren't shocked that he did it. They were instead like, that was really quick. And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, at first reading, it seems like Jesus is talking about the power of prayer here. And he is, but, but we have to keep this in context. Jesus is taking on the role of prophet, He's warning about what's coming for the temple in Jerusalem. And it's not like here he just goes on a detour and teaches something entirely different. Remember, the geography here is important. Where is Jesus at this point? He's on the Mount of Olives. He and his disciple are on the Mount of Olives. Where are they headed? They're heading to Jerusalem. And so when Jesus says, if you have faith in me, who I am or what I've come to do, you'll be able to say to this mountain, I don't think he's just talking about any mountain. 
I think he's talking about Mount Zion, the temple mount, the mountain that the temple is on. Jesus is saying, if you have faith in me, if you are a part of what I've come to do, you could say to that temple on that mountain, be cast into the sea, be no more. And it will happen. And as we know, it's exactly what happened in 70 AD. So stepping back, going back to where we started, what, what is it that made Jesus so angry? We could call a lot of things. Call it simplest maybe thing to call it would be dead religion. Dead religion is a spirituality that puts focus on behavior, on ritual, on routines, but totally neglects the heart. It's a spirituality that takes pride in drawing lines of insiders and outsiders and takes pride in keeping some people out. It's marked by spiritual arrogance and condescension. Jesus is enraged by the dead religion because it runs completely counter to what God has revealed in his word. That faith in him is to be marked by a transformed heart, a heart filled with mercy and compassion and love, a heart that seeks to welcome others in and bring others into relationship with God to come alongside of them. And he looks at the temple, and it's not only not serving his purpose, it's actually impeding the purpose for which it was created. And so what does this mean for us? I want to give you three, three applications. The first thing this text does, I think it calls us to examine our hearts. Examine our own hearts. I mean, the sin of the temple worshipers is that they've grown comfortable in their religion. It's not like they, they stopped going or they didn't believe in God anymore. It's that they became presumptuous. That they strolled into the temple like we might stroll into a Kroger. They took it for granted. They went through the motions and they assumed that everything was fine, even though their hearts were far from God. And we know their hearts were far from God because God expresses longing, his longings and desires for the world in his word, and they didn't share those longings and desires. God longs and desires for people from all nations to be blessed and to come to faith in him, they didn't share that desire at all. In fact, they, they had this strong nationalism that viewed the temple as this, their stronghold. Like, this is us. We're special and we're unique because we get to worship at the temple and soon enough, God will rid the world of anyone who's not like us. See, they were, they were doing the religious actions, but their hearts weren't marked by mercy, grace, compassion, or love. Instead, they were self-righteous. When Jesus shows up doing the very things God promised the Messiah would do, they get offended. Examine our hearts. You know, these folks, they had great biblical literacy, but they knew nothing of biblical longing. They could recite the words, but their hearts were not pointed in the same direction as Jesus' heart. I think that's a real danger for us. I think that's a real challenge 
when you follow Jesus for a long time. J.C. Ryle, a pastor from the last century, he once wrote, he said, there's only too much truth in the old proverb, the nearer the church, the further from God. Familiarity with sacred things has a dreadful tendency to make men despise them. I mean, think about it. The temple, the creator, eternal God, dwelled in the temple. You got to go there. I mean, how amazing. (laughs) And then for them, it just became a routine. Now, the church isn't, this building is not a temple. Church isn't a temple. But I do wonder how many of us, our hearts have grown cold to these great, wondrous realities and promises and truths. I think a great test for examining our hearts, it's not the only test, and I won't qualify beyond that, but a great test for examining our hearts Like, how do we know where our hearts are with the Lord? Not just our actions, our hearts. I think one of the greatest tests is looking at our prayer life. I mean, that's what Jesus points to twice here. Temple is to be a house of prayer, a place where people talk to God. God created us to be in relationship with him. He saved us to restore our relationship with him. And prayer is how we engage and enter into our relationship with him. And prayer is something that you can't really fake. There's a lot of Christianity you can fake, but you can't fake praying to God. Not in private. So examine your hearts. Examine our hearts. Look at our prayer life. And the second thing that I think this text invites us to, at least what stuck out to me, is if we feel, gosh, that's kind of me at times. My heart is far from God, I do go through the motions. I want to say that that's not okay, but it's normal. And so in a sense, it's okay, but it's, it's not a place you want to stay. It's not a place you want to live, but we see it happen again and again throughout the scriptures. We see it Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We even see it in our own lives and looking around. And if we find that that's where our hearts are, the second invitation is to pray that God would renew our hearts. It's in faith going to Jesus and saying, renew my faith, renew my heart. I don't want to go through the motions. I don't want to just operate as kind of this superficial Christian. I want to know you, and I want to live out of my knowledge of you. See, I think the greatest antidote to spiritual drift is prayer. And I don't just mean praying for daily needs. I have a friend, John Smitty, preached here right before COVID hit. And one of the things John talks about, he says a lot of times our prayers are just what he calls anxiety prayers. We pray for whatever immediate needs before us today. We pray for friends or relatives who are sick or have some ailment. And of course, it's not wrong to pray for those things. We should pray for those things. Cast all of our desires before the Lord, all of our requests before him. But if we really want to see our hearts inflamed by God, it's not just saying, God, maintain the status quo in my life. The way our hearts become inflamed once again for the Lord is we learn to pray the prayers he taught us. 
prayers about holy longing and desire. Prayers like, God, may your kingdom come. We're not happy with what we're seeing right now. We look at our world and we don't like it. We look at the church, we don't. We look at ourselves and we don't. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth right now. We want to see it today. We can't wait now. That's the call. That's what we long for. See, it's not enough to say, do you believe what the Bible says is true? I hope you do. Bigger question, a more piercing question is, do you long for that which Jesus longs for? And if you don't, start praying that God would stir that longing within you. And so much of the dead religion in America has come because people, they learn the Bible, but they don't seek to know the living God. And we shouldn't, we know the living God through the Bible, but they, they never go beyond it. It's like they master this like it's a textbook or something and forget that our God is a living God. He's poured his spirit into our hearts. And if you're a person who's saying, no, I'm awake and I see it and I hear it and I feel it, I want to encourage you, pray for the dead religion in our country to be exposed. I mean, this is a time of great winnowing. God's going to work on the church. He's going to work on us. It's a winnowing in our own lives. I feel it. You probably feel it too. God's exposing some things, revealing some things, calling you to new things. But I want us to be a church that prays, Lord, don't just maintain the status quo. Refine us, deepen us, expose the dead religion, the chaff. Pray for the nationalism that, that has become so intertwined with the church that we can't distinguish between America and Christianity. Because it's that nationalism which fuels so much of the anger and hatred with our politics. And I want to be really clear before I get an email accusing me of being a communist. Like, I love our country, I love America. But America is not the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is going to be filled with people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every economic system. There will be socialists in the kingdom of God. There will be communists in the kingdom of God. And Lord willing, there'll be capitalists in the kingdom of God. And so I pray not just for personal renewal, but for us to renew who we are as God's people. Number three, examine our hearts. Pray for renewal. Number three, the third application is that we would worship at the true temple. As I mentioned, that temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, and it was never rebuilt. And there's a reason why. God had a reason for this. And we see that reason when you look at Jesus on the cross. He dies on the cross. And you know what happens in the temple? The giant curtain that separated where God dwelt from where the people are. The temple separated the Holy of Holies. It was torn as Jesus died from top to bottom. You see, Jesus didn't come just to bring reformation. He came to bring transformation. He didn't come to improve the temple. He, he came to replace the temple. I said earlier, the temple is a place where all people were supposed to come and be able to worship the living God, to offer sacrifices, find forgiveness for sins, have their hearts transformed. 
Well, that's what Jesus came to do and be for us. Jesus, he doesn't just offer forgiveness for sins. He gave himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And so we, unlike them, we don't need to bring animals or pigeons or anything like that in to make atonement for our sin. Jesus was the sacrifice. He offered forgiveness. He opened the door. And through him, the spirit of the living God, which once was, you know, in a very unique way in the Holy of Holies, now it's been poured out into the hearts of all who believe. And so we don't have a holy place. We have Jesus, and we have a spirit. We don't have to wait or make some pilgrimage someplace. We can respond today because he is at work. He's alive in our hearts if we believe. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that Jesus He wasn't driven by anger. He was driven by love. John says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. He didn't send Jesus in to just give us a scolding. He came so that Jesus might save us. And what we celebrate at the Lord's table is remembering that the Christ who drove out the money changers and cursed the fig tree was the same Christ who said, this is my body broken for you, for your sins. And this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. And he's the one who called us to do this, to take part in this meal, to remember who he is, to keep us grounded in the story, to keep us from entering into a place of spiritual drift. And so if you're here, if you're spiritually numb, you're just going through the motions, this is a great time for you to just say that to God. You know, we, we have little communion packets of You don't have them, but if you put your faith in Christ, you can grab one out there. Hopefully you grab one on the way in. As you're doing it, if you're like, I feel like I'm just going through the motions, just tell God that. Just pray that. I feel like I've been going through the motions. Revive me. Renew me. Restore to me the joy of our salvation, of my salvation. You can cry out. And our God is a God who responds and who's eager to respond. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in communion, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave his life to save yours. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.